In the spirit of reconciliation, Yellow Ladybugs acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend their respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to the Yellow Ladybugs podcast. In today's episode, we're revisiting our mental health and safety conference from June 2021. For this conference, Yellow Ladybug CEO Katie Coolis introduces our two Yellow Ladybug ambassadors. Our host is Hannah Arbuthnot, who is an autistic and queer comic. They'll be interviewing autistic comic and author Hannah Gadsby. Please note that this episode features our interviewer who is transgender and since recording has changed the name. We would like to acknowledge Hannah Arbuthnot's name change, both as part of this podcast recording and for any written information in relation to the podcast. Together, Hannah and Hannah discuss mental health in relation to their own autism diagnoses, including what it is like to grow up either with or without an autism diagnosis and the ways in which this may have impacted their mental health. For more information and to learn more about Hannah and Han, please see the show notes below this episode. Hi everyone, I am Katie, CEO of Yellow Ladybugs, and I'm so proud to introduce the next discussion with uh, Hannah Bothnott and Hannah Gatsby, both Yellow Ladybugs ambassadors. Yellow Ladybugs is an autistic-led not-for-profit charity based in Australia but has worldwide reach to support autistic girls, women and gender-diverse individuals and we're really proud to be able to offer you this presentation today. Thank you. Hi everyone and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, My name's Hannah Arbuthnot. I'm a Yellow Ladybugs ambassador and fellow queer autistic comedian to someone I am very excited to be chatting with today, Hannah Gadsby. If you don't know her already, Hannah is a world-renowned, award-winning comedian and also a Yellow Ladybugs ambassador. Hello, Hannah. Hello. Hi. (laughs) How are you doing? Not bad. Yourself? Uh, Very bad. Yeah, good, good. Let's go with good. (laughs) This conversation we're having today is a highlight of the Yellow Ladybugs Mental Health and Safety Conference. Hannah and I are going to be chatting about what it was like growing up with or without an autism diagnosis and the impact this has had on our mental health throughout our different or potentially similar journeys as two autistic Hannahs. Um, I I will start us off with a question. Um, So I'm someone who was diagnosed as autistic as a child at a very early age. I was about seven um, and someone who benefited from receiving understanding and support at an early age. How do you think an earlier diagnosis might have affected both your resilience and feelings of self-worth? Self-worth. <laughs> it's, it's really hard to say. Um, how, may I ask how old you are? I'm 23. 23. So what year were you diagnosed? Um, 2004. 2004. Right. Because um, I, think, I think there's also a generational thing as well. Like, I, I'm pretty sure there wouldn't, like, I can't be too upset that I didn't get an earlier diagnosis because I just don't think women, you know, on the hot, you know, the, the certain parts of the spectrum, most of the spectrum weren't getting diagnosed. Like, I think only um, really, really severe cases were being, uh, severe is the right word, I'm not sure. But um, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it's, it's really, really difficult to say. Um, I think there's... I had to do a lot of scrambling once I was diagnosed because I had to readjust how I understood a lot of things. 
since being diagnosed I think six years ago to five years ago now um basically I've spent most of my time trying to untangle um my PTSD from my autism and they're quite similar um it and that was one of the biggest things for me the diagnosis helped me with was that you know helping me with the effects of trauma because the way I was dealing with it was under the assumption that I was neurotypical yeah and um there were things there that were just never going to get better I I thought you know things like going out to noisy places was just a thing normal people did and I desperately wanted to be a normal person. I assumed I could be a normal person if I just got my shit sorted, excuse the language. And diagnosis meant that it was like, oh, I, no wonder I kept failing at these things. Um, yeah. It, it, it made it easier. But there was an enormous amount of grief. And I do think about my younger self um, and how much easier it, it would have been because, you know, having a problem-solving mind, I was forever trying to problem solve but I just didn't have all the the understanding of of what was best for me so I kept putting myself into dangerous situations and painful situations um because I was very good at masking although I yes <laughs> I I yeah I think it's um obviously I don't remember being diagnosed that well but I remember it explaining a lot and helping it helped my family and I to kind of move forward and know that things were going to be okay and we had a name for things um things oh right, right. <laughs> I thought you were like that's that thing is Michael that thing is right, no, autism is autism's a name for things um, um and since your diagnosis um you've been able to bring talking about autism into your comedy um do you think that talking about autism in comedy would have been received differently if you were diagnosed earlier in your career um well yeah it, I think it would have just been sort of wrapped up in what my comedy was. Uh, I think I would have been a different comedian had I known because a lot of what I do on stage and my persona on stage is part of my masking. Um, you know, I learned how to modulate my voice because the first few years I was performing, I just kept getting reviews going, she's dull and listless, mono monotonous voice, you know, things like that. So I've actually... <laughs> because I'd never heard myself really before, because I'd never really performed um, or pressed record, you know? So, you know, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I think it's like all things, it's impossible to untangle what might have been, but I do know like off stage, I would have, I think had more control over my environment. I would have known how to have more control over my env environment. So I would have done less damage um particularly to my self-esteem you know when you keep failing at being social and you know having people being upset with you all the time that, that does take an edge off in you know your self-esteem so i i'm still probably sometimes you know go into grief mode about you know this is very frustrating um, particularly because, uh, you know, the popular understanding of autism is so narrow um, and not understanding that, you, you you know, you have a neurobiological situation and, you, you know, you go, you run through the narratives that's always played. It's emotional. It's, it's you know, a flaw in, in your 
personality and I think that's that's really upsetting and I think that did a lot of a lot of damage and contributed to my the effects of trauma yeah um I I talked about autism when I started comedy and then um when I was 15 and I was encouraged to talk about it but then some for some reason at some point I decided no I don't want to anymore and I started getting really embarrassed which I think now is kind of silly I had no reason to be this is a a cool thing to be talking about and I think I think now um I've noticed so many comics are talking about particularly women and non-binary comics um I've started talking openly about this and I remember late last year I was at a gig where a comedian got up and said I just got diagnosed with ADHD and then two others in a row got up after that and said I also just got diagnosed with ADHD um, and there were so many, many of us in the room. And I think it was so cool to be able to have, to find that connection. Um, and, uh, I was wondering, have you found yourself more likely to establish close relationships with fellow neurodiverse people rather than with neurotypical people? Um, since being diagnosed, I've just stopped trying to build relationships. <laughs> Um, that caused a lot of damage back in the day. Um, I mean, I have. It's fine. I'm fine. <laughs> but, you know, not being a young person, I don't, you know, I, I have, I think you search less for your, your community the older you get. Um, I certainly do have an easier time talking to neurodiverse people because, um you, the bluntness is acceptable. Being blunt yeah. is more acceptable. Um, people are forgiving. I just tell people it's not going to get less awkward. Um, and neuro, uh, neurotypical people tend to take it personally. Um, emotions. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think it affects the, the way we tell stories about ourselves. So, um on, the thing about comedy, though, is that um, I find it, you know, it's changing so quickly now. But when I first started, you had to talk about what was different about you because then everyone's uncomfortable. Um, you, your, body, your body is your context. And unless you make people feel comfortable about what they suspect is different about you, they're... they're they're not hostile necessarily, but they they don't feel like comf- they don't feel comfortable, and that's fine if you like to do uncomfortable comedy. But I don't. Um, and the thing about autism, as opposed to being a woman or being masculine of centre, particularly as a woman on stage and being queer and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are visual clues that people are able to just go, ah, and they get their ideas. But autism is not visible or easily identifiable, but people still know you're strange. People still find you unsettling, I think. Well, they certainly do me um, because I've been told. Um, and so I spent a lot of time on stage explaining that as, as other things because I didn't understand. Um, 
but it is annoying to have to talk about what's different when you could just be talking about how horrible airline food is. You cannot, like, I just, I feel very, uh, you always have to clear away the questions people are going to ask about, uh, you know, your, your, what your body represents because your body is your context. People make up their minds before you even make, you know, before you even get up to a microphone, people have made all sorts of assumptions, particularly in an open mic scene or when they're, it's easier for me now, people know who I am. So I, I, it's easier, like it's quite easy being a comic when you have lots of fans because people are like, we like you, we trust you. Anything you say is kind of already gonna be funny. Um, but when you're first starting out, you're a stranger um, and the things that are strange about you, you have to you have to work out how you deal about it, and that ends up shaping your comedy, and that's both frustrating and also a bit of a gift because anytime you have tension, you've got a little bit of a fuse for comedy. But it, you know, like I was constantly frustrated by watching you know straight male comics just get up and go, you know how it is, and everyone goes, yeah, we know how it is, we have no questions about you. Um, and then, you know, you have to just work so much harder to contextualize yourself. Uh, there's so many decisions you have to, you know, it's, it's like, it's a difference between being on, you know, going upstream in rapids as opposed to just coasting down, downstream. Um, but I, uh, you know, boohoo also. <laughs> um... Sorry, I'll so focus on listening that I've gone, Where's, where am I headed next? Um, I think we can get away with a few clunky uh, transitions. I, think, I that's... think so. They can cut stuff now. Yeah. Also, they can accept it. Well, that's better, actually. This is the perfect forum for, yeah. you know, <laughs> clunky conversation. I think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, we can do that. It's, 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 it's on brand here. We can. <laughs> <laughs> when I first, I got diagnosed with ADHD before I got diagnosed with autism. And, oh. uh, this must have been 2015. And I did a show about it the very next year, was, which was a mistake. Right. Because I didn't understand it enough. And at the time, uh, ADHD was one of, still thought of as just something people you know think is made up yeah it's you know like it's just made boys up. with too much energy it's <laughs> yeah 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 with parents who don't want to put down boundaries you know give them too much sugar yeah. um you know so I had uh, I I sort of found myself having a fun time on stage but then off stage getting so much unsolicited rejection of uh, my diagnosis, which I actually found quite painful. That's why I didn't talk about autism for a while. Yeah. Um, because when 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 you tell people, and I get still get this um, to this day, they're like, "You don't really, do you? You're good at social." And I'm like, "Yeah, I work hard, and I'm exhausted by it. Like, it's you know, I would love to just be myself, but I know that, you know." particularly because now I'm, I have a certain amount of sort of celebrity, I have a position of power. So my blunt, I have to be careful with my bluntness, even though I really want to call spades spades. <laughs> um, it's interesting what you're saying about the, 
like I, I'm someone who also has had the um, autistic, but you're so sociable. You have friends, you talk to people. Um, and I thought you for know, a long time Dustin that Hoffman pretending. <laughs> that's no, it. that's, that's it. Um, and I always thought that I was someone who just, um, no one noticed I was autistic and all my friends were neurotypical. Um, and then I realized I just got diagnosed before everyone else. And then now a lot of my friends are just starting to figure it out. Um, and they'll come to me and be like, I think, I think I'm autistic or I think I have ADHD too. Um, so yeah, I think it's interesting how they all kind of, um, end up being similar to me than I thought eventually. Um, I also wanted to ask what is, um, one strategy that you use to help your mental health? Um, my favorite thing is problem solving. Um, you know, like trial and error, uh, sleep, sleep. I have a, a lot of difficulty with and, you know, so I've set it up into a, you know, an adventure of like what will work, um, what will help me sleep. Um, and just being, you know, understanding and listening to my body helps a lot. Uh, I didn't realize there was such a disconnect. You know, that I can, I'm starting to learn that distress happens in my body before it spills over. And that's how I've learned to protect myself a bit more. Like, I, you know, I, I have to remember to think about my body. It's a manual process. Um, but I can generally go, oh, I'm overheating. I'm about to cry. And yeah. this is like, I'll take my top off. Not all of them, but um, <laughs> I'm a never nerd. Um, but it's, um, you know, just sort of, you know, that's, that's been incredibly helpful. I think it just also helps that I'm older. Like I think it's easier when you're older because, um, well, it's not necessarily, but you know, my, my life has become easier because I'm less, I don't have to worry about who I am. It's too late. You know, identity is a young person's, you know, pursuit. And it's, yeah. you know, it. I wish it had been more fun for me. I'm having fun now. Uh, I think, you know, when it comes to sexuality, gender and, and neurobiology, I think it would be a, an ideal world if people could just have fun with those things. Um, that is, I think, the end game. That's the goal when it's just like, you know, you don't have a gender reveal. You give a kid, you know, the first 18 of their lives to reveal. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, I think, uh, and, and my mental health has, is still um, tied to trauma. And, you know, that's, we don't understand the, the, the intersections between the, you know, autism and and trauma that well so I think about it in terms of that it was just like it's just being aware of what works and what doesn't for me as an individual um is there any um advice that you've been given to help with your mental health that that stood out for you or has been the best advice um there's, I mean, there's a lot. Like one time I was, I kept getting told I was a sociopath. Oh. Um, and so of course the diagnosis helped with that because it didn't feel right because I really do care a lot. But of course, 
being someone who's always been constantly confused, I've relied a lot on what other people tell me. Um, so I really used to take that on, you know, to heart. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm thoughtless. I, I'm a, so, you know, that's the spectrum from thoughtless to um, uh, sociopath. <laughs> I used to worry a great deal about that. And the best advice I got on that front was like, if you're worried about it, you're not. I'm like, oh. So, you know, tell a sociopath they're a sociopath. They go, yeah, I am. Cool. Now let's get back to my agenda. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, look, I think my, I think it's so personal and I think that's the, that's what you have to uh, like work out and you know what works for you what kind of uh, I focus a lot on my environment because I'm I have sensory processing issues and that that is my um you know my go-to when I'm when I'm feeling agitated but I think there's only so much a, an individual can do, particularly, you know, for the first time in my life, I have means to look after mm -hmm. myself. I didn't always have that luxury. So it's one thing to say, look after your environment. But, you know, back in the day, there wasn't much I could do about that. And I had to live with other people. I had to, you know, pay bills that I didn't know how to do the paperwork for. So, you know, I think, I think go easy on yourself if you can't, you know, I think people on the spectrum often need external scaffolding, as I call it. Um, yeah. And one of the biggest things that helped me once I was diagnosed is I let go of the shame I felt at not being able to, you know, basically my complete lack of executive function. Um, I'm really, I'm very glad that we are having this conversation because I know that a lot of people who, a lot of people who only after growing up and I'm going to ask that again, um, <laughs> um, I'm really glad that we are having this conversation because I know a lot of people who only after growing up and finishing school and listening to new conversations that are happening now have been able to look back and realize that there are people who are like them who are experiencing the same things. Um, and hopefully the more resources we provide to young people, the closer we can get to schools and, and other places becoming safe environments where um, nobody feels like they have the need to mask or camouflage as I think it's being called more often now. Um, what was your experience with masking um, or camouflaging at school and how did that kind of impact your mental health? Masking or camouflaging was, was essentially, you know, that in every sense of the word. It was to not fit in as much as just to be invisible as possible. Um, I remember once someone said to me, I think it was my sister-in-law said, I just really admire you. You just don't care what people think. You just be you. You're such an individual. You like, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> I thought I was doing it normal. <laughs> like, and I remember just going, what? what is it? Like, I thought I was doing it right, but there was just like, people have often said that to me. It's just like, oh, you're quirky, aren't you? And I'm like, oh, I thought it was, what, what am I, like, I didn't understand any of that. And, and one of my, I used to have trouble with speaking. Um, like, I think, I think it's 
you know, there's selective mutism, but I, I don't understand the selective bit that makes feel like I have control over it. Mm. Um, but one of the biggest things I realized I was doing once I was diagnosed when I was a kid, it was just like, I'd practice talking. I'd practice, you know, before I go into a social situation or just have catchphrases and things, stock standard things. So then I'd practice it. And it wasn't about practicing what I'd say as a form of communication, but as muscle memory. So I knew how to move my mouth around words. So they were not foreign. So I'd, go into social situations and not have not engage on the surface of it but just work out what stock phrases I could insert into any given moment which is really great training for a comedian it's basically what we do to prepare ourselves for hecklers um and and things like that so I I had I I didn't understand that's what I was doing and I didn't understand that not everyone hated being social um like uh and I I used to just that's how I developed a sense of humor was through my camouflaging because it it's a form of deflection you know you don't understand what's going on about you but you're listening to absolutely everything and so then I can I made connections to other people's conversations so I just became this sort of strange presence that was on the outside who was occasionally funny and then otherwise forgotten and that was the dream right um um, that's just amongst my peers teachers were a little bit more problematic I was very frustrating to teachers because I was smart and yet no evidence uh you know so I got I was lazy like my school reports are just littered with phrases like you know, does not work hard enough, lazy, um, all those sorts of things. And what was really frustrating to me was I'd work just how hard I worked to be lazy. Like I, I didn't get to have fun like other people who were lazy and going, I don't want to do schoolwork. I'd go, I'd just work all the time and get nothing done. Um, so that, but I still believed I was lazy so I feel was- like we would have pretty similar school reports. Mine, mine were very much, um, I got a lot of, this essay would have been really good if you'd handed in a draft. And I'd be like, well, I, I worked on the finished thing for probably about as long as everyone else was working on their drafts, but I, I couldn't start it soon enough. And then my favorite one in my report was, Hannah's participation is spasmodic. Oh. And I remember going, get rid of your thesaurus, mate. <laughs> like, just come on. I'm 14. Yeah. I shouldn't have to look up words to see how bad a student I am. <laughs> like, you know, like, in, you know, another one was intermittent. I'm like, I'm not a windscreen wiper. Come on. Let's yeah. use words. Is, um, is, is there um, anything that you would want teachers to know about um, when it comes to caring for students with autism or, or mental health challenges? Yeah, I think, I think it's difficult for teachers as individuals because, you know, there's a structure around them. Um, 
but uh, you know and like so you know sometimes I think teachers should get their hand off it I think (laughs) (laughs) sometimes teachers have this thing where they're like they blame a student for their poor performance and I'm like you really could look at your teaching yeah there's a common denominator here and it ain't me um and I think, but that's changed. Like I haven't been to school for a long time. Um, so I don't know what the situation is now. Um, but for me, the, the class part was at least easy for me to understand. The, 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 the mark, mark, markation was easy. It's like there's a beginning, there's an end. They tell you what to do. You struggle, you try and do it. It was the the social part of it that, that, that threw me for a spin. Um, like I arrived at school when I was in, in primary school and did not, did not know how to make friends. Like didn't understand, but didn't understand it. Like I just stand there and go, it'll happen. It didn't. I used to just hang out with my teacher, you know, whoever, and just have a chat. Yeah. Um, you know, and just, I got bullied, but also, a lot of the bullying I didn't notice. It was hindsight. I'm like, oh, they were being mean. So, um, but being oblivious meant that they didn't bully me for long because they're just like, well, this isn't fun. There's no retaliation. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was in high school, we lived next door to the school. So I just, just went home. Yeah. So I spent five years not not interacting so I go (laughs) which is good it's good just went home and watched the midday show with Ray Martin yeah I um I had some time off in year 11 because I had a surgery and because I had so many um uh doctor's appointments off the school made a terrible decision and said well you know what from now on all your absences are going to be approved you don't have to tell us you don't have to I just didn't go to school I was like well this is great this is I don't have to worry about anyone else now. Getting out of stuff. Yeah. That is one of the the, the thing, the the skill sets I got with camouflaging um, was like, I remember once when I was at university, I didn't know, I couldn't finish an assignment. Like it was just too much, a lot going on. And, but I didn't have an excuse like as such so I didn't know what to do so I just went to talk to the my my lecturer and I went in and I was just like obviously I was having a day where I was struggling to speak and you you know and he's just like I can see there's something going on in your life you're struggling have an extension I'm like I was just struggling to talk (laughs) um but I'll take that yeah and I'm just like yeah it's really hard at the moment I mean, in hindsight, it was really hard. Like I just, you know, living on my own, you know, outside of the family for the first time and trying to navigate, you know, both higher education, a couple of jobs, you know, and, and just all those things. I realised I, I was struggling, but I didn't identify it as that, but I took it. Man, I took it and ran with it. Yeah. So every time I want an extension, I just go and look sad, which is just my resting face. <laughs> I yeah I remember um once I figured out that some of my teachers were understanding of me um having anxiety 
I was like, well, that's, that's my out if I need it now. And most of the time that was legitimately what the issue was, but if it wasn't, I still had that. (laughs) Which is what makes us, you know, that's normal. That's a normal, I think, growing up thing. I think with whatever they have. Yeah. Um, And so we talked about um, teachers. Uh, Is there anything that you would want um, parents supporting autistic young people um, or experiencing mental health challenges to, to know about? I think one of the one of the big things I see that worries me is parents speaking for their children. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be great if parents stopped writing books about their kids on the spectrum, um, because that's that's their story. It's not about autism; it's about their aut- their their response to autism. And I think those kinds of stories are doing a lot of damage to autistic people's understanding of self, because um, that's a narrative of burden. Um, which, you know, autism can be a burden on the family, but not because of autism. It's because of the so-called developmental order that we've decided on that is arbitrary, incorrect, and a load of shite, um, you know. And so <laughs> I think I think it's, it's stopping, you know. We are telling our own stories now, um, you know, I think people are starting to understand we don't have a see a music film clip in our head all the time. Like I think I think people are getting that. Um, we're not here to be magical people to make people feel better about themselves. We have mm-hmm. our own inner lives that are our own and are about our life. Um, so yeah, I I think you know I, I would, uh, but there are also really great. I've seen such great parenting as well. Um, you know, where you know I've you know spoken to families who have, you know, neuroatypical streak through them, and it's kind of lovely. You know, like I feel like just learning from each other is really important. Like most most parental children um, uh, relationships. Um, I think my mum said a really interesting thing to me um, about when I was a kid. Because, you know, like every time I came out with something like, you know, I'm gay or I'm got ADHD, everything, even accidents, like I broke my arm, rejected them all. She was just not interested. Um, she has issues. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but when I told her I had autism, and I took a long time to tell her because you know, she's not interested. It's a joke. Um, she's a great lady. But I was expecting the same sort of pushback. So I took a while to just go, I've got to prepare. I've got to understand it so I can teach. And I told mum and she's just gone, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, that's the missing piece, isn't it? Um, and she said, yeah, oh, that, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and she described it as this and it stayed with me she said I always felt like you're a tin of baked beans and my tin opener was broken so or my tin so like she knew there was so much going on inside me baked beans is a A lot of beans in there metaphor for it Um, (laughs) but it works you know but she didn't know how to get inside like to 
you know, and that's, that's, I think that's, that's the work that ha if you're a neurotypical parent with, with atypical children, that's a, that's a life, that's, that's the goal. It's like you have to work out how to get access or share, you know, the inner life without, mm -hmm. you know, damaging, you know, or demanding that, you know, you know, different, you know, being different, you know, like it's, and it's hard because, you know, people, I think all people on the spectrum tend to, you know, develop differently and it, it you know, it can be frustrating. Yeah, I think, because um, I'm the youngest of uh, four and three of us are diagnosed and my mum self-diagnosed with autism. Um, and something that we've talked about a bit is, is not, um, a parent shouldn't take, shouldn't take things personally. Um, no matter how your kid is acting around you right now, if they're locking their self, uh, themselves in their room or they're acting in a way that seems disrespectful, there's probably something going on and they still need you. And as, as tricky as it can be, you need to let them know that you have their back. And I think getting angry or taking things personally won't really help either of you or... Like I relationship. Know, that's great advice for any parent. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's, yeah, I mean, I, got, I, I used to get, get that in, in, you know, relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, like I remember an ex-girlfriend of mine insisted that I was being, I'd lock myself, you know, just go to my office, you know, do some work and put some music on. And she insisted that this was antagonistic behaviour. And I'm like, what? Mm. <laughs> you're, you know because I didn't read the conflict that was apparently there and was just like I'm just gonna go and be on my own and not having the understanding I had autism it was really 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 confusing and I was just like why are you taking this personally I just want to be on my own um so yeah it's but I, I think you know families have stress and uh, you know I think you know, the family, there's a lot of pressure on family units and not a lot of support. Like our society pretends that it supports the family. Like it's the, it's the building block of our culture, but really there's not, you know, that's why parents get stressed. That's why parents take things personally, you know, because it's, it's a, it's hard. It's hard raising. I'm not going to have a family. Mm. No. no way. <laughs> no way. Um, would, would you say now that, that you have, um, uh, a positive relationship or a positive autistic identity, um, and does having that help you maintain good mental health? Yeah, yeah, it does. Hmm. Uh, and it helps me maintain healthy relationships as well. I understand, I understand where my boundaries are now and that I'm allowed to put them down even though they're different boundaries that other people have. You know, I used to let people throw me surprise birthday parties all the time. I didn't. No one. It happened twice. <laughs> Let's be honest. All the time. It be popular for that to happen a lot. <laughs> twice. And, um, and the, I remember, you know, the cake was lamings, made out of lamingtons, and I've just gone, I don't like lamingtons. Why hasn't anyone asked me? anything i hate surprises and i hate lamingtons 
sorry if that's upsetting to people. I know people get very patriotic about lamingtons, but it's just shit sponge with pretend chocolate. That's and coconut is toenails. So um <laughs> there's a texture problem. That's a good um, way to put that's it. That's just personal. Um but you know, now it's sort of like, you know, I'm able now to tell people that when I say I don't want to do anything for my birthday, that's my happy place. Yeah. Um, and that was really, really difficult for people to understand as like, because particularly when you're a, a solitary figure like me and people care about me and they're like, you need to know that people like you and the best way for that is to have a great big crowd making loud noises around you on the day you were born sometime later. Um, and now I understand that I'm allowed to go, that's silly, goodbye. Uh, so I think, you know, my I have simple needs, which meant in the past that meant that my boundaries could be overridden without, my, you know, other people prioritise what they, you know, things on my behalf because it's like I just want to be alone. It's like, well, no, you don't because being alone is is being isolated and that's bad. And um, you see, then you go, oh, okay. Mm. <laughs> when you're like, no, actually, I would love to be alone right now. <laughs> and, and, and because the thing is I've become more able to be social because of that. Right. Because I now leave, you know, I because I, I like people and I like being around people. I like parallel playing like a, like a champ. But um, I wait till I've, you know, I've got the right amount of energy for that and then I'm, I'm good with it. And I do like, like I don't find camouflaging a problem. I don't mind doing it because I like to make people around me feel comfortable. You know, I don't do it to the extent you know, there was a time I was camouflaging and didn't know that's what I was doing. And that I think is where the damage gets done. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I psych myself up to do a, do a thing and I'm like, you know, I, I do it. And then I love living in hindsight. You know, I enjoy social situations after the fact. Cause I, you know, like I replay it and I think about it and I, you know, and then I, you know, that's, that's fun for me. That's enriching. Um, and so Knowing that about myself means that it's just like, you know, I'll, if I feel tired, I don't go out or I don't, I mean, I don't go out. Who am I kidding? It's been a pandemic. But, you know, no, you know I don't know what I'm saying today. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> where was I? Right. Yes. Um, we get, we'll get there. Um, how, um, how has the autistic community um, helped you feel connected to your autistic culture or proud of your autistic identity yeah look it's been been really great look (laughs) I've sort of participated in that community the same way I participated in anything it's just sort of watching and listening and you know I I find social media really overwhelming um and frightening um and I know that's not everyone's (laughs) um rearranging himself um i get yeah i find social media hyper social and (laughs) really difficult to navigate so i'm 
I participate in that I observe it and that and that has helped in and of itself. I haven't I haven't gotten involved in the conversation. I think there are really smart activists out there that are saying things so I don't need to. Um I don't like I feel I feel like perhaps there's this expectation that I need to be some kind of leader in in the autistic community, but I'm very careful because I don't think I know and understand it um, as well as other people do. So I, I sort of find it, a, you know, a resource. Um, but, you know, since being diagnosed, I felt comfortable in not trying to be part of communities. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think, um, I've only recently kind of, uh, been more involved in, in communities and that was mostly online as well. Um, and I think what I've found I've, I've liked about it and particularly, um, with yellow ladybugs is that, um, it's a, it's a very, um, welcoming community that are generally um very open to talking about intersectionality as well um so it's it's been it's been good yeah. for yeah to talk about um being autistic and being queer and autistic or for me being um transgender and autistic um and i think that uh seeing people with the same diagnosis as me and a lot of other similar experiences as me in the same space, um, succeeding at things and doing things that I want to do. Um, it has been helpful and makes, makes a lot of people feel good. Yeah. I mean, I, I should add that, that, you know, I've been like, I'm well aware that I've been, I'm very welcome. Like I've been made to feel mm. incredibly welcome. Um, and, you know, I'm hesitant about, active participation not for my own reasons not you know and it's um but it has been like it is really solid to know that it's there and yeah. that there is this community and I think one of the things I like is that I'm you know I do these sorts of things and I just enjoy it because I know that if I wake up bad I can go please don't make me do this and it's the community who will go Sure. Like, I hate yellow. I cannot, like, it makes me feel, ag like, it has a, phys like, a physical, like, it, it makes me feel agitated and it's, a, it's, a, it's an assault on my eyes. And, you know, I'm an ambassador for yellow ladybugs and they made me a blue T-shirt. Yes. Um, so it's like, you know, like, that's cool. I like that. Like, it just feels very, like, there's this, in the community, it feels like there's this really proactive no no drama problem solving yeah and i like that yeah i am um, my shirt's my shirt's black it's got some yellow on it but it's not it's not yellow as a whole yeah <laughs> um are there um any opportunities that you would have liked to have seen um offered from um teachers or allied health professionals to foster positive autistic identity um 
I think it's it's really difficult because adolescence is is such a time of transition and it's difficult for everybody, but particularly people on the spectrum because transition, no offence, is really difficult. That's a joke. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, you know, transitions are, you know, not our strength, so to speak. Um, And that is just a decade of traumatic transitions in a way. And, like, I think there's a balance. I'd like to see a balance between, like, um, taking pride in your difference and accepting your differences, but not pushing that too hard. Like, I think sometimes it's like there's this message where it's just like, just be who you are. It's cool. It's not cool when you're a teenager. Like, fitting in is incredibly important, and I think that needs to be acknowledged. It's just like, it, of course you want to fit in, and you're going to struggle, and it's going to be painful. But, yeah. you know, like, just saying, like, just be proud of your difference is really unhelpful because who is when they're, you know, a teenager? Yeah. Um, and it's a sort of like, it, 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 you know, I'd, I'd really like to see a balance in the conversation of just like just acknowledging it's like, this is hard, isn't it? Do you want to tell us how hard it is? As opposed yeah. to like that message where it's just like, be happy with who you are. Yeah. Um, that's, that's just telling kids is like they have control over that and honestly they don't yeah um I think that yeah conversations like that as as well as um you know something as as simple as we all work differently everyone's needs are valid um mixed in with but it's still not easy like things are hard and we can talk about that I I remember when I was in school there was always like a condescending or uh infantilizing vibe involved in talking about the autistic or neurodiverse kids it was always oh he needs his quiet space or or I remember some teachers uh, asking loudly in front of um the rest of the class to to one student have you had your medication today um without any real conversation with the rest of the class um about how we're all working differently and that's that's all right um yeah, and I think that there are some some conversations there that wouldn't be that hard to have, but would go a long way. Yeah, yeah. Um, like if it, it's such a such an important time, you know, and a dangerous time for trauma for people on the spectrum. Um, and I think the best approach is to try and find a way to let, you know, young people with autism to talk for themselves, to communicate for themselves. Like that's not always possible with words, but Mm -hmm. I think communication is still possible. It's like you've got to find the right tin opener. (laughs) My mum doesn't even like baked beans. I think you should know that. Like I made that really funny. It's just like, mum, you hate baked beans. <laughs> I've kept that baked bean thing in my head since you said it. We've been talking and I've been like, okay, but like what? Like it could just be get a tin of fun stuff, but it's not. It's yeah. Like it's like future farts. Yeah. I was kind of like, we'll pick up 
a different, I have two can openers, I think. I don't know. <laughs> um, I'll, uh, I'll wrap up with one last question. Um, what was the easiest um, thing or, or belief to let go of once your autism was identified? Um, that there was a right way to do things. Yeah. Um, it's very freeing to know that it's just like the world is ableist. Like it's built to, ex you know, access is the biggest, is the leading cause of disability. Um, and so I have found myself just going so much easier on myself when I, you know, understand that I can't do something and I am allowed to ask for help. Um, and I, you know, it was always difficult for me to understand that I could be, you know, and people have said this to me so many times over the course of my life. It was just like, you're so smart and so stupid at the same time. They use worse words than that, of course. Um, and it's that, and I am now able to hold those two parts of myself without any shame. It's just like, yeah, yeah, I can do some things and I can't do other things. And I don't now use that as a reflection of my, um, who I am and my worth as a person. I used to hold it as just like all the things, all of the things that I couldn't do were who I was. And that eroded my sense of positivity around what I could do and what I was good at. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's, I guess, is I have confidence now. And I think part of having good self-esteem is understanding your limitations as much as it is understanding your uh, strengths. Is, is, is self-esteem, I think, comes from understanding your limitations, not a, not making it a character flaw, but working with them, you know, and that's that's where I found. Was it, what was that? Anyway, um, <laughs> I have a very I I have very very good hearing, heightened sense of smell, and um, these things, and and. That used to always, these things always used to be a real um, distress points because, <laughs> you know, I hear and smell things I didn't, I didn't need. And some sounds are quite painful to me. Um, but when I was diagnosed, what I discovered is like, what I worked out is like, well, there must be the converse of these things. And I've learned to use, um, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I just, <laughs> you hear that? Like it's this weird Anyway, um, I don't know. That's probably in the next town over. No, my oh. hearing's not that good. But um, <laughs> I've I've learned to identify what makes me feel good. You know, like that's why I wear only blue is because blue is, as opposed to yellow. So I focus. Yellow makes me feel angry. Blue makes me feel good. So I focus on on that. You know, and I mm -hmm. you know, I, I enjoy the the you know. I've learned how to surround myself with myself with, with things that make me feel good as opposed to just avoiding things that make me feel bad. Um, yeah, I think um, 
So a key change in a song, like high-pitched sounds sort of feel like someone's dragging talons down my spine. It can be really, really painful. Right. Um, But a key change in a song is sort of like, sort of is, 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 delight like I feel delightful so yeah um I think that's that's one of the things I've I've really started to really motor on with is just like for all these things that are you know a negative I'm now searching for for for, for these positives and taking joy in those instead of just protecting myself from from difficulties yeah well, thank you. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Hannah. Um, no worries, Hannah. It's been, yeah, it's two of us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been so great talking with you. Um, and yellow ladybugs. Great to meet you. Yeah, you too. Are you doing any gigs? Um, I have some. I've, uh, nothing super exciting, but I'm around. I'm doing stuff. I've blanked at the moment, but <laughs> yeah. Good, good stuff. Keep working. Thank you very much. Well, yeah, it was great to talk to you. Yellow Ladybugs always loves working with you. Um, and I hope that you enjoy the rest of your day. Well, I like ladybugs, so there's that. <laughs> Me too. Thank you so much to both of you. That was brilliant. It was. I lived brilliant, laughing, crying. Um, it was just brilliant. This is this is where it goes. We don't know how to finish. That's it. Oh, that's... All, all three of us are <laughs> autistic, so we're like, how do we end this? Okay, bye. <laughs> okay, bye. I'm going to end it now. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Yellow Ladybugs podcast. For more information or to learn more about Hannah and Han, please see the show notes below this episode. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you join us next time.